0: In whom or what do you trust? Now, to answer that question, you've got to think about what trust is. Trust is the belief in the reliability, truth, ability, or strength of someone or something. Well, in what do you put your trust? There's all sorts of things we can put our trust in, or people we can put our trust in, aren't there? Often, for many of us, we think... There is only one place to look and that's within, trusting in ourselves. Some of us might be willing to be a little more vulnerable, trust in family or friends. Maybe it's other external things, bank account numbers, employment, reputation. If we're really brave or foolhardy, perhaps we'll trust in our leaders or our politicians. But of course, none of these things are perfect, are they? Even if you've never thought of trusting in anyone or anything but yourself, you'll know that that's a bit of an unreliable uh, measure as well because I don't know about you, but I've let myself down at least once or twice. Well, the invitation to trust... And to trust god is one of the things the big themes though there are many in the book of isaiah it's an invitation if you will to make sure that our trust is not in someone or something created but in our creator in god himself and what we see in uh, the book of isaiah is that for god's people Uh, in the Old Testament, in Israel, they were constantly tempted away from trusting God to trusting something else or someone else. And often we see for Israel, it was a trust in sort of the geopolitical order of the day. As they looked and saw scary enemies from afar, they, instead of trusting God, they would put their trust in different nations or kings to try and help them. And, of course, Isaiah continues to warn them. It can be easy for us to be like Israel and to look around and think, maybe God's not there for us. Maybe I need to hedge my bets a little. Maybe I need to put my trust in someone Or something else just in case God doesn't come through for me but of course Isaiah reminds us no no keep trusting God and what we're going to see as we look through the the book of Isaiah and of course we're not going to cover over everything in 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 six weeks but we're gonna see how the book continually invites us to trust Today we're going to think about trusting in God's justice. Next week, trusting God's hope. The week after that, trusting God's victory. Then trusting God's gift, trusting God's servant and trusting God's future. And let me encourage you to spend some time uh, over the coming six weeks uh, reading the book of Isaiah. It'll take a while. It's 66 chapters. It's big and it's long. And as you might expect, uh, it's also relied on heavily by the New Testament authors. It's the most quoted Old Testament book, so it's significant as well for us as Christians. Which means that uh, there's loads and loads and loads and loads of things written about this book you think it's a long book with 66 chapters sitting there in the middle of the Old Testament? Well, that is dwarfed compared to what Christians through the ages have written about it as we've sought to try and understand it and apply it to our lives. Uh, and so what I want to do is try and distill just the smallest amount of that to try and get your uh, head around what it is we're reading here. What is this book? What, what do we make of it? How are we to understand it? Well, uh, essentially, Isaiah splits into two parts. Uh, chapters 1 through 39 contain uh, Isaiah prophetically speaking to the people of God and, and, and warning them about the coming exile and the, as a judgment of God for their lack of faithfulness to him. But throughout that, there's also little morsels of hope that, that, that the prophet puts in as well for those who do trust. But nonetheless, that's the it's, it's thing. It's this big coming judgment of exile. And then what happens in verse 40 is it, it sort of fast forwards in time, uh, sorry, not verse 40, chapter 40, and uh, now the books, the prophet Isaiah starts to talk about uh, the hope that, the ex- that God's judgment will have come, that the exile will have happened and that now God's people can look forward to, to, to the hope of restoration, of, of a restored Jerusalem through a faithful servant. Now one of the biggest debates uh, that you'll find if you even do just the smallest bit of digging yourself uh, trying to understand this book is did Isaiah, ah, uh, is it all Isaiah? Because the way it shifts at the end of chapter 39 from talking about future exile and, and kind of warning about that to chapter 40 where we read comfort, comfort my people and it looks like the promise of a restoration post-exile which that that's a time span of like about 150 years uh, people that makes people wonder whether Isaiah could be is responsible for it all and people take all sorts of different views about that and I think it's important to know that uh, people do have lots of interesting takes on the on the scriptures and that's okay we don't need to freak out when people start trying to ask questions the Bible is a book that invites us to ask questions and some say that what we have is the the disciples of isaiah who got carried off into exile who kept his prophecies kind of applying the start of the book to to their situation in exile that's a that's a position that a number of christian uh, scholars will take but plenty of others argue that in fact what we have is just as the exile hadn't happened yet, and uh, Isaiah was able to prophetically warn about that, so too he can prophetically speak of the hope for those who end up in exile. And that's the position that I think I'm most convinced by, that we do indeed have the writings of one prophet. And I, I don't, it's not just Chris Bowditch making that up, there are you know, scholars with PhDs who back me up on this take, who argue for a single author uh, for the whole book and that author being the prophet Isaiah. Of course, even if you did decide that the work was, say, Isaiah at the start and then his followers for the for the last bit, the fact would remain that God in his infinite wisdom has caused the book to come down to us as one and therefore we need to consider it as one thing anyway. Well, what's in it? we got this: got the, the warning and the hope well, Isaiah is, is is a book full of prophecy, and it's a book full of prophecy that comes to us in a po- in a majority poetic form. And poetry has rules. Now, uh, I am not a very good literary critic. It's never really floated my um, boat, uh, and you're going to understand this because of the example I'm about to give you, but Uh, because it it hasn't really left high school English. But, uh, you know, there's this form of poetry called a haiku. Japanese poetry. It's the only poetry I can write, because the rules are so simple. Three lines, five syllables in the first line, seven in the second, and five in the third. And as long as you do that, you're a poet. So let me show you one. Isaiah is long, God's judgment and hope revealed, the servant saves us. I'm pretty sure I got the rules of haiku poetry right, right there. Um, so I, I, cl- I clapped it out in my head as I wrote it. Um, Isaiah is long, God's judgment and hope revealed, the servant saves us that's a haiku because it follows the rules and uh, I illustrate that because Hebrew poetry also has rules about how it works and the way it conveys ideas and the two key ones for us today to have in our minds as we read through the book are parallelism and metaphor these are two of the the, the main ways that Hebrew poetry communicates things to us so parallelism is where uh, different lines in the poetry or even different sections are are written and they're they're to connect some sort of idea together. So what you'll see if you look through chapters 1 to 5, which I'll I'll show you in a moment, is that uh, it constantly moves between judgment and hope, judgment and hope, judgment and hope. And that's a parallelism to show us how these things are connected. Likewise the use of metaphor is constant. So we have it in our reading today, don't we? The picture of the vineyard. And that's a huge part of Hebrew poetry, speaking to us in, in metaphor. And it's really important that we notice that because as Christians, we're, you know, we're well-schooled in interpreting Paul's letters uh, and he, he, he writes with a very particular rhetorical style which is very particular. And so we like to analyze particular words to come up with uh, his meaning and his theology. We do ourselves a disservice if we get too tangled up in the particulars of Isaiah, forgetting to take the metaphors as holes just so that we understand the the kind of the big points. Hebrew likes to make big points using literary style. Hebrew poetry likes to make big points using these literary, literary styles. So we need to keep that in mind as we work our way through. And as we do that, let me turn your minds, and uh, if you've got your Bibles there, keep them open to chapters one to five, which is our first invitation to trust, to trust in God's justice. And what we see in these opening chapters, chapters one to five, which are kind of like the prologue, they're the introduction to the book, they, they introduce us to a lot of the themes that we're going to see unfold through, throughout the rest of the book. But we see here God's people Israel, proud, arrogant, sinful. Anything but the servant of God, they were meant to be as God's holy nation set apart to be a light to the nations. And yet, despite their failings, despite The promise of judgment for their failings the message of hope is that it is still through Israel that God is going to bring his blessing into the world because of who God is now how can that happen how can it be that God's people who've been set apart for a task by God uh, and have failed so dismally and are going to be judged are still going to be used by God That's sort of the big question of Isaiah, if you will. Uh, And, of course, that's why, just to, you know, foreshadow a lot, is why Isaiah gets used so much by the New Testament writers, because the answer, as it always is, is Jesus. It is Jesus, the true Israelite, the one who serves God completely, who brings God's blessing to the world. But I've jumped massively far ahead to get us to there before we we dive too deeply into that let's just take a moment to work our way through it we see israel in a bad way uh, chapter one uh, refers to israel as a rebellious nation and it invites them to repent of their sin in verses 18 to 20 of chapter one let me read them to you come now let us settle the matter says the lord though your sins are like scarlet they shall be white as snow Though they are red as crimson, they shall be like wool. If you are willing and obedient, you will eat the good things of the land. But if you resist and rebel, you will be devoured by the sword. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. And we see here judgment and hope. There's going to be justice for those who rebel, but there's still hope for the future for those who trust in God. And as it moves on then into chapter 2 we read about the promise of a time that will come when israel will again be at the center of god's plan but again as chapter 2 unfolds first judgment must come because israel have been rebellious and that theme continues through chapter 3 and what we see is that as the judgment of God comes on the rebellious nation, there's a, a small group of faithful ones who remain. Let me to you from chapter 4, verses, starting at verse 2. In that day, the branch of the Lord will be beautiful and glorious, and the fruit of the land will, will be the pride and glory of the survivors in Israel. Those who are left in Zion, who remain in Jerusalem, will be called holy, and all who are recorded among the living, all who are recorded among the living, in Jerusalem what we're seeing here is the foreshadowing of something to come but the idea of a remnant and the servant introduced here that God will bring his judgment on on a corrupt nation but there are those who have remained faithful who he is going to work through to bring his plans to fruition but that is still very much a future hope of a small group And the majority of Israel that Isaiah is prophesying to are not like the lovely branch resting under the protection of God. They're like the vineyard that we have in our reading today. The vineyard that God sets up for success, verses 1 and 2. I'll sing for the one, I love a song about his vineyard. My loved one had a vineyard on a fertile hillside. He dug it up, cleared it of stones, planted it with the choices of vines. He built a watchtower in it and cut out a wine press, as well. Then he looked for a crop of good grapes, but it yielded only bad fruit. How disappointing. Perhaps you've uh, spent time in the garden, worked on a plant only for it not to produce what you'd hoped. You might understand the frustration God has with his people who he's given everything to, called them out uh, of Egypt, given them the promised land, given them rules to live by which lead to their health and well-being and yet they've chosen again and again and again not to produce the fruit of faithfulness. And so God says he's going to remove his care and protection and turn the vineyard into a wasteland. We see that in verses five to six i'll take away its hedge it will be destroyed i'll break down its wall it'll be trampled i'll make it a wasteland and in chapter in verse seven we see this is a prophetic picture of what's going to happen to israel as a result of their rebellion the vineyard of the lord almighty is the nation of israel and the people of judah are the vines he delighted in as he and he looked for justice but sure bloodshed for righteousness but heard cries of distress it's a massive failure on the part of israel and as the chapter progresses we see that this is going to lead to god's judgment verse 15 of chapter 5 people will be brought low and everyone humbled the eyes of the arrogant humbled and as god does this as he brings about his judgment and justice on the people of god for uh, all that they've done wrong you see all the all the injustice that they've done in his name we see the lord will be exalted by his judgment verse 16 and the holy god will be proved holy by his righteous acts and what we see as the prophet kind of introduces us to these themes is the importance of god's justice and the goodness of god's justice you see, it's not just that God's people uh, were just ignoring God and that's no big deal. One, that's a massive deal. But two, it was having really bad results for, really, for, for people in, in the land. There was bloodshed and distress. God's people were utterly corrupt. was there was no justice there was injustice everywhere the rich and the powerful uh, exploiting and abusing the poor instead of looking after them and helping them and god's going to bring his justice to bear and when he does he'll be exalted he'll be proved holy and righteous it's a wonderful thing to see the justice of god work out because it means injustice does not win it means judgment will come and this makes God good Isaiah's invitation is to to trust in God's goodness and his judgment and his justice because that without it Uh, We have a a God who is not to be awed or respected at all. I think one of the great problems we have as 21st century Christians is conceiving of God far too much like uh, uh, our sort of equal, equal but slightly more powerful friend who, who, who kind of just wants us to achieve all our goals and dreams in life. He's the great assistant to our self actualization And it's true that God does want us to uh, be the best versions of ourselves and he calls us to live holy lives uh, under him. But God is an almighty God he's the creator of the world the ruler of the nations and he cares deeply about justice he cares deeply about the right things being done he cares deeply about his name being glorified and in our world and in our day they are often not God's judgment and his justice are good things and in fact that's the beauty of the cross isn't it for God's people in Isaiah's day didn't know how God was going to ultimately sort out the need for him to be a just God but also how there could be hope in the midst of his judgment and his justice for all fall short of his standards but in the cross we see how God manages to hold together his judgment and his justice perfectly. From 1 John 4:10, which I think, is that the, was that the memory verse the kids have? 4:13. 14. There you go. 4:10. Well, this is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his Son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. On the cross, we see. God's perfect judgment and justice and it's poured out on Jesus who is an atoning sacrifice for our sins. He's paying the price for the injustices of the world, for the injustice and the sin of you and me. And he pours out his judgment and his justice on Jesus. Why? Because he is a God who loves us. because he is both loving and just but of course the cross only works for those who turn to him who repent. Romans reminds us all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and the wages of sin is death but the gift of God is eternal life how in Jesus Christ God's loving act of grace and mercy on the cross of jesus christ where his justice is shown perfectly and his love made complete it requires repentance on the part on the part of god's people trusting god's justice means trusting that jesus has taken the judgment you deserve trusting god's judgment means admitting that without christ You are like the people that Isaiah is prophesying to in in desperate, uh, deserving God's judgment. And yet God in his kindness and his mercy has sent his son Jesus to take your place. Trusting God's justice means that we can know that there is no sin ever that is left unpunished either by Jesus, either the sin is dealt with by Jesus on the cross, or you can deal with it yourself and pay the price yourself on the last day. God's justice is a beautiful thing. We often read stories of uh, injustices in our world, of people who get no justice, of parents who die without the murder of their child brought to justice, of people who get away with heinous acts and crimes. How can we make sense of any of it without God's perfect justice? In the end, we all have to give an account. And God in his kindness and love says, you're going to fail. But trust me, I've sent Jesus to pay the price. All you have to do is accept it. And so that's the question I want to leave with you today. As we consider God's justice, will you accept his gracious gift of sending his son Jesus to pay the price for you? Amen.